0: We have another great show for you today. Brianna, what's going on?
1: Well, our panel weighs in on why Trump's donors are chipping into a Ron DeSantis pack. Plus, we'll discuss how the war in Ukraine is creating a global food shortage with writer Lee Harris. But first, as the nation grapples with the tragedy at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, Congress is gridlocked over a gun control package.
0: Talk started two weeks ago, and though twenty Senate Republicans support the framework for a pending legislation, they're facing major pressure from gun advocates and opponents of the bill. According to Punch the partisan group by bi, the bipartisan group of senators working on the bill are expected to file it today. So will a gun control bill pass? The Hills Congressional Reporter Mike Lillis and political reporter Julia Manchester join us now to discuss further. Welcome to you both. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Uh, so, Julia, you know, what do you think is the likelihood that this thing ever becomes law?
2: You know, it's quite possible. We know that there is Republican support for this right now. I think we're going to have to see more details of the legislation that could potentially impact uh, Republican support. since We know that this is an outline of what could be um, a proposed outline of what could be the legislation. However, I think it's remarkable the pressure that Republicans are facing from their bases, in particular, John Cornyn from Texas, the lead Republican on this in the Senate. He was at the Texas GOP convention over the weekend and he faced quite a bit of booze, you know, when he was talking about the legislation with people calling him a traitor and such. So, you know, it's unclear at this point what will happen. I think it's, you know, we are making progress uh, more so than we have before. But Cornyn and I would say other Republicans are definitely under a lot of pressure from the pro Second Amendment wing of the party that sees this as essentially caving, even though it's ironic because Democrats would say that this net doesn't necessarily go far enough.
1: Julia, is there any residual pressure from folks that are concerned about school shootings and are particularly, you know, kind of horrified by the events in Uvalde? You know, I think
2: absolutely, there's definitely that pressure. And you're seeing that on both sides. And I think it's reflected in the uh, proposed legislation. So for Democrats, they think this is... um is supposed to be solved through gun control and restricting gun access or putting more restrictions on gun access. However, when you talk to Republicans and how they feel about this issue, it's all about the issue of public safety and school safety and really um, upping that in the wake of these school shootings. I think you see both of those aspects reflected in this, maybe a little heavier of a lean on the school safety or public safety portion of this, but absolutely, I think right now, you know, we've, Uvalde seemed to have uh, really signaled a breaking point, I think, in how this country has responded to gun violence. Um, however, uh, this isn't the first time we've had a horrific school shooting, and um, it seemed like there was going to be progress, but ultimately nothing was done.
0: Well, that's what frequently happens when there is a really horrific mass shooting, then there's a brief period of heightened public interest in doing something anything you know regardless of if it's enough or would have actually worked in that case and then that kind of momentum seems to to fade in the past mike i want to get you in on this so you know what are what are you seeing on that front
3: Uh, you're exactly right the timing is so important here uh because exactly of what you said you know the the headlines are going to change something else is going to come up there's going to be another issue another tragedy um, and you know the, the the attention span of the public, the media, of all of us—we're all complicit in this—tends um, to be very short. And after Newtown, after the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, um, everybody was on board with some sort of reform. John Boehner said, "We'll take a look at it. Let's get." It was the Pat Toomey, Joe Manchin background check uh, bill, if you recall. And what happened was that was in the middle of December. It was right before the Christmas holidays. Um, and President Obama at the time, uh, you know everybody just wanted to get out of town. There was an urgency, but there was also the holiday coming up. And, and instead of putting these things on the floor immediately, what he did was created a task force and it was headed by none other than, Vice President Joe Biden Um, so Biden knows exactly what he wants to do he's been on this issue for many many years but because of that delay by the time it hit the floor in 2013 it didn't pass the Senate and then Boehner didn't have a reason to take it up in the House because it hadn't passed the Senate so the urgency that you're seeing right now is for all of those reasons because of the attention span of the media and all of us that um, they want to get it done before this two-week uh, july recess and that means that means this week and so we're going to see what the bill looks like today but uh, but time is of the essence and they all know that
1: Hmm. Well, Punchbowl News reports that gun control negotiations are getting hung up on abortion. As Washington braces for a potential Supreme Court ruling on abortion rights, Republicans are reportedly not wanting any funding from gun control to be used to pay for abortions. As the Senate rushes to get this legislation through ahead of the two-week recess, as you, as you mentioned, starting Friday, this comes as justices are ready to end their term with a blockbuster docket. Julia, what can you tell us about these upcoming SCOTUS decisions?
2: Look, I mean, I think the one we're obviously most closely paying attention to is Roe v. Wade and fate of Roe v. Wade. And, you know, according to that draft opinion that was leaked uh, or draft decision that was leaked a few months ago, it would appear that the Court is very much on track to overturn Roe v. Wade and punt this back to the states. And we've seen that, you know, subsequent stories sort of coming out of this big story of the draft memo have really overtaken Washington, including some of the death threats that have made, been made against uh, justices, including Justice Brett Kavanaugh. We've seen conservatives very much voice a lot of concern about that um, and talk about that quite a bit. So it's going to be very much of a blockbuster week. And we can't ignore the fact that this is obviously happening right before the midterm elections about 5 months or you know less than 5 months before the so it's something we're very much paying closely attention close attention to because we know that you know whatever side comes out on top in this decision i think you know both sides are going to use this as a galvanizing me- mechanism in uh, the midterms, especially Democrats who are going to be very much leaning into this issue of Supreme Court justices, Supreme Court decisions when it comes to the race for the Senate.
0: Absolutely, Mike, do you, yeah, do you think a, a you know a Roe uh, decision of Dobbs decision, Is that just going to, like, shut down all activity on the Hill anyway? This is just going to reorient our politics toward dealing with the fallout of this? And then that might exactly be the thing that pushes gun control out of the headlines.
3: Well, I'm not sure. I mean, it it will certainly become an explosive campaign issue, as Julia just mentioned. Everybody's going to go back to their district and either cheer it or attack it, whatever the decision is. Obviously, we don't know what the final final look is going to be. We've seen the draft, but not the final decision. But um, it will be a midterm issue, but not necessarily a legislative issue on on Capitol Hill. The the House, Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats have already passed uh, their bill that would codify Roe, that would uh, entrench those protections uh, into law. But of course, the Senate is not going to pass that. So uh, as a legislative issue, it, it, it doesn't really resound. And that will give the gun reformers the space uh, to still push those talks um, again, understanding that the urgency uh, is, is still there, and, and that they're going to have to do something very quickly because we're we're going to be in August recess really soon. But no, I, I don't think that 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 a row decision as explosive as it might be. Uh, would change the politics on Capitol Hill in terms of ed- everything else that they're trying to do. They still have to fund the government. Roe versus Wade is not going to, to change the the urgency to get something done there. They don't want to shut down before the midterms because both parties would get beat up. So, you know, there's legislation that what they will and, you know, they have to pass and they will pass and, and Roe is not going to get in the way of that. Whether gun reform is on that list has yet to be seen.
0: Well, Julia, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
3: At any time.
0: And we'll have more rising right after this.
1: Robbie, what is on your radar today?
0: Uh, you're going to like this one, Brianna. Mm-hmm. Eric Greitens is a Republican politician, the former governor of Missouri, and a current candidate for Missouri's Senate seat. He's running in the GOP primary to replace Senator Roy Blunt, who is not seeking re-election. Now, Greitens is, in fact, a disgraced former governor. He, while in office, was charged with felony invasion of privacy after having an affair with his hairstylist. He was accused of taking intimate pictures of her and threatening to blackmail her if she ever revealed the affair. Subsequently, Greitens had admitted to that part of it while denying the blackmail aspect. Facing impeachment, he resigned from office in 2018 after serving fewer than two years as governor. Now he's getting back into politics and running for the Senate. His campaign has been condemned by Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who is Missouri's other senator, and actually investigated Greitens while previously serving as the state's attorney general. Citing allegations that Greitens physically abused his wife and son, Hawley tweeted that Greitens, quote, belongs in handcuffs, not the United States Senate. Hawley has endorsed one of Greitens' rivals, former state representative Vicki Hartzler. But Greitens has been endorsed by Rudy Giuliani, and he's recruited to his side Kimberly Guilfoyle, the former Fox News personality and fiancé of Donald Trump Jr. He desperately wants an endorsement from the man himself, of course, Donald Trump. Now, yesterday, Greitens unveiled a new campaign ad, and fair warning, somewhat disturbing. Here it is. I'm
4: Eric Greitens' Navy SEAL, and today we're going rhino hunting. The rhino feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice. Join the MAGA crew, get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country.
0: So Facebook removed the ad from the platform. Twitter left it up but added a warning label saying it violates the site's abusive behavior policy but is in the public interest, so it will remain. Should social media sites take down political advertisements because they think the content is harmful? Well, I'd say this could be a slippery slope. I personally find all politics somewhat disgusting, the government often being the greatest abuser of all. Nevertheless, it is clearly in the public interest in a democracy to let people consume political advertising. And thus, Twitter's approach seems infinitely better here to me. Now, in my radars for rising, I frequently criticize social media moderation policies for violating the ethos of free speech. But look, this time, I'd really rather just talk about the content itself. I don't want it censored or hidden from view, you know that. But it should be criticized, including and especially by other Republicans, because, in fact, it's really awful. The ad's central idea, if it can even be called an idea, is that the phrase Republican in name only, which derisively criticizes GOP members who are insufficiently pro-Trump, and when abbreviated is R-I-N-O, sounds like Rhino, the animal, ha-ha. Why on earth would Greitens want to suggest that Republicans who don't worship Trump as much as he does should be hunted by armed agents of the state? Agents who break down your front door, launch a smoke grenade, and then hunt you? I thought Republicans were claiming to be the party that thinks government should mostly leave people alone, the party that believes private property matters, the party that doesn't want armed agents of the state harassing families for political wrongthink. Just imagine... Try to conceive of the outrage if this video had been produced by a Democratic political firm and instead featured a gun-toting resistance liberal vowing to hunt down Trump supporters and other deplorables. Actually, we don't have to imagine it. In 2020, there was a movie called The Hunt, which was about affluent liberal elites hunting redneck, redneck deplorables for sport. Now, that film was actually satire. It was making fun of the bloodthirsty liberals. But many conservatives, including Donald Trump himself, didn't get that and condemned the film for potentially inflaming violence against the right. So any Republican who denounced that movie should probably be pretty mad about the Greitens ad as well. Now, in addition to this political ad being inflammatory and just plain bad, it betrays what I think is an unhealthy obsession in some corners of the Republican far right with courting the most Trumpy of Trump world, including Trump himself, by engaging in edgy and unproductive, provocative stunts like this. Notice that there weren't any policy proposals in that ad. There weren't any ideas for reducing inflation, bringing down gas prices, reforming the FDA, fixing the education system, doing something different in Ukraine. The only message the candidate got across was, I am so mindlessly, myopically loyal to Trump, I am willing to portray myself as willing to persecute his detractors, even within my own party, to an insane degree. This is not a strategy to build and grow the Republican coalition. This is a strategy to get Trump's attention and hopefully win him over with excessive flattery. I call this rather pathetic tendency in some corners of the GOP, the notice me senpei strategy. It's a popular online gif and series of memes that makes fun of Japanese anime characters who are desperate to win the affection and appreciation of the senpei, the master. Does that sound like anyone we know? Yeah, it describes far too many Republicans Far too many still obsessed with the approval of Trump. Who, by the way, I think Trump loves to be flattered, but even mm-hmm. Trump has sometimes complained about like he thinks Hannity's level of, of flattery is way yeah. over the it's top. Weak. And it's, 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 it's weak
1: stuff, it's obsequious. It's yes. over the top, yeah.
0: Yeah, so you had
1: you said you hadn't seen that ad yet. I hadn't seen that <laughs> ad yet. Holy smokes, what an ad. <laughs> I mean it's nuts. If it you know, if it it didn't raise the potential specter of kind of a, you know, violence against your political po- opponents, it would be hilarious because it does seem so gratuitous and i don't know i'm I'm trying to i'm trying to uh, describe this without using a word that rhymes with buck (laughs) but like the energy is so it's kind of pathetic and i think your, your really solid point here is that the ad doesn't say a single thing about what he's offering to his constituents even if you're willing to put aside all of his personal Scandal and blackmailing a woman that he was in an affair with and all of that stuff, which I tend to agree should be disqualifying considering we have 330 million people in this country. Many of them qualified to hold public office. I think we can find some folks that don't have that kind of dirt in their background. Even if you're willing to ignore all of that, it has to be for a reason. You know, some, some people on the left, some liberals argue, you know, let's say Al Franken was thrown under the bus mm-hmm. and, you know, he you know, he shouldn't have gotten me too because of all that he had to offer to the Democratic Party. He was uniquely kind of gregarious, warm, funny guy who could have survived in the Trump era, had been a good counterbalance to that kind of like sideshow media frenzy that was happening during Trump. You know, those are reasons, whether or not you agree with that argument, those are substantive reasons why you would say, let's rehabilitate someone who's done something wrong. I'm not seeing the case being made for this guy. All I'm seeing is bang, bang, hit him up.
0: Yeah, no, and it was it, it was potentially criminal behavior. I mean, go, blackmail, that kind of stuff. Uh, allegations that he physically abused wife and child. Right, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a Me Too contrarian. I think some of the, the Me Too stuff, possibly like the Al Franken case, went went too far. Some other things, the am sorry, I know you mm-hmm. feel the same way in that one. Uh, you know, it, it, relationships can be bad and messy dates can be bad and messy this clearly went beyond that and also yeah. but also you know we we expect pretty near perfect behavior from our political class as they work for us we get to decide on them right i'm not saying he should, he should have never had a job again i guess although black the blackmail thing the is, blackmail going is beyond just regular messy behavior um, and
1: abuse is not great and, I mean, I don't want to make it all about this, but there's all of this documented, you know, research about the relationship between people who have done spousal abuse right. and a lot of these gun crimes that we've seen. And it's a it's a point that comes up when we're right. talking about background checks and what we're checking for is, have you been a, a, a domestic abuser before in your past? Because there's a correlation between that and, and gun violence. And, and why him? There are other people are running other people. in the primary
0: who are ju- who, who's. Political views are just as down the line, conservative, Republican aligned with Trump uh, you know, Josh, Josh Hawley is, is not a, like, sellout to the MAGA movement by any stretch of the imagination, right? He is 100 percent in the Trump camp. And he said, are you kidding? He's he's begged Trump not to endorse this guy because, like, not this guy. This would be humiliating and embarrassing if I have to sit next to him in the Senate, a man I tried to prosecute. prosecute yeah. Please don't do that. Now, Trump doesn't care about that. He, he'll humiliate anyone sure. for any any reason. <laughs> but, uh, but
1: Well, what do you think the deal is with uh, Guilfoyle in that
0: yeah. You know, in-law
1: relationship with the Trumps. What's what, what in it for her? Do you think that she would have made an endorsement like this without some kind of tacit agreement that it was okay from maybe, Trump And Maybe she
0: was friends with him or had some kind of previous association with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, may, I, I don't know maybe she's being paid. I have no idea what the literal reason is for her to get in his corner, but maybe she sees uh, that he could be a winner. I mean, he's so he's ahead in many of the polls right now, so... Certainly, if Trump endorses him, there's he is winning like absolutely. Um, if Trump s- quickly endorses someone other than him, he might lose. Is, is my sense of it.
1: Well, look, I, but this,
0: this I, ad, I, I, I ad have to keep is designed to make sure that. Trump stays, uh, stays in. The, but I, but I don't know if even does Trump watch something like this and think it's a little like desperate and a little. I think he might. Um, I don't know. I don't know. He also does have
1: this superficial part of him where, you know, remember all those stories about how he wanted his staff to put more makeup on and to get tans and to Mm -hmm. do their hair differently. You You know, the guy is a Navy SEAL. He cuts a kind of appealing figure. I think there's a world where Trump could like it. Who can say? All I know, Robbie, is that I, I thank you for reminding me about the movie The Hunt, which I think was probably the last movie I saw in theaters pre-COVID, taking me <laughs> back to a better time. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed that
0: yeah, You're right. I, I did not see the I wanted to see the movie because uh, Damon Lindelof was a writer on it. He's mm. a, I'm a huge fan of Damon Lindelof. He did Lost. He mm. did uh, Watchmen. He did Leftovers. All shows that I love. And uh, yeah, my understanding is that movie got wrongly portrayed yeah. as being like, like you weren't, you weren't rooting for the no, affluent liberals no. who were hunting the, yeah. the rednecks.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. definitely satire. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, we
0: will have more rising in just a minute. We'll discuss President Biden's uh, decision on a gas tax holiday. Stay tuned for that.
1: It looks like Twitter is almost under Elon Musk's control. We are learning that Twitter's board of directors unanimously approved his $44 billion buyout offer, according to an SEC filing. Jack Dorsey, the company's co-founder and former CEO, Parag Agrawal, current chief executive, will go home with huge payouts, according to reports.
0: Yeah, so that's so I have those figures here. That's 42 million for Agrawal, and Dorsey owns 2.4. 2.4 percent of the company, 18 million shares, and that's uh, eight, 978 million for him once the takeover is complete, um, if it goes through. Uh, we've, you know, we know that Musk has said, as recently as this week, that there are still some unresolved matters involved in the deal, including uh, this fake accounts, which he has said he's only interested in acquiring Twitter if, as Twitter has claimed, no more than five percent of the accounts are fake accounts we all suspect it's more than 5%. Sure. Now, is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 30%? I don't
1: know. Sure. And, you know, as a it's refresher... somewhere in that range, probably. <laughs> yeah, There seem to be a lot of fake accounts from my personal experience, <laughs> but who knows how many exactly. And, you know, this is material to Elon Musk because he said, as we talked about on the show before, he is interested in moving to a subscriber model on Twitter. So some folks have already experienced using uh, Twitter Blue and paying for additional services, like being able to post longer videos and having a delay on posting your tweets so you can catch your type before they become part of the public record and his thought is to get more people bought into that subscription model which obviously matters a great deal oh, there's a real human with a credit card behind an account Versus just an, an empty. Egg. What would
0: you pay to be able to change your your there with the apostrophe <laughs> re to the h e i r after you posted? That that would be a, a very valuable service. It, it
1: would be, but imagine what that would do to change the character of the site. I mean, so much. Imagine if you could go back and revise your old tweets, revise your old opinions. You know, so much of what makes Twitter useful to journalists and useful to people who want to do witch hunts or have all kinds of agendas is the fact that you kind of tweet and you forget it. And to the extent that you remember a bad thing that you said or did, there's no way to get rid of it, except for fully deleting the tweet, which can become obvious right? when there's holes in a thread and things like that. And there is this way that it has become this accountability mechanism, rightly or wrongly, for people in the public sphere. Wrongly, some would argue, for people who are not in the public right. sphere, who have all these tweets from when they were in well, high school it's or It's funny whatnot. to
0: compare it to Facebook on both those fronts because – so on Facebook, you can edit your post. It mm-hmm. just says edited after. Mm-hmm. But also, it's so much more difficult to search Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like, like, It's impossible, in fact. Yeah. It, 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 sometimes I'll be like, I, I, I recall a Facebook post I want to look up. It is dang hard to mm-hmm. find old Facebook posts of your own, even mm-hmm. if, you know, with full access to your own account, let alone search for someone else's old yeah. uh, Facebook uh post I've, I've wanted to i've wanted to bring back up a ranking i did of all the black mirror episodes on facebook we were talking about that <laughs> we the other were day talking about very that. hard to find uh you you can't find it now facebook will periodically every day will remind you well here's what happened to you like six years ago and three years ago and something mm-hmm. that but then so unless you happen to be on the exact Reminders anniversary the you don't, don't want to see post. lots of times <laughs> <laughs> no i find some of my facebook uh comments from like uh like the late aughts were uh they were pretty entertaining they were it's a different era yeah, I mean era. you're
1: you're you're a married man, but there's a world where it's telling you, oh this time three years ago you were doing this with a partner that you'd rather not think about anymore. So Facebook uh, sometimes a little is a little bit of a troll. But I'm curious what you think about uh, what you hope what becomes of Twitter. Under Elon Musk's reign. What is the number one thing you're you're hoping to see? Oh,
0: that's a good question. Um, see, I don't have as many complaints about Twitter as I do about other. I, I think the uh, the moderation on Facebook has become much worse, particularly particularly with the fact checking. Um, I like we were talking about earlier today the the their decision with the in my radar with the Greitens ad. I think that was perfectly fine. Um, the the big thing Twitter needs to do is, is learn how to effectively limit. Um, actual harassment mm. without su- chilling speech.
1: Well, what what would you characterize as actual harassment? Because isn't that the whole problem? Right. We have right. very different definitions of what should doxing, be um, uh, uh, uh,
0: sharing uh, people's locations or phone numbers, things of that nature. Um, you know, repeatedly spamming someone over and over again or flooding their inbox, that kind of thing. Um, I would like to see. I, I like. The fact-checking model that Twitter applies, this Birdwatch thing, hmm. which is a side thing where you can you can then check the fact check, and it's hmm. totally user-generated, more like Wikipedia than any kind of moderator uh, thing. I, I would like to see that be the model for fact-checking. Have people
1: been using that? People is that use that it, yeah,
0: yeah. Actually, and, and despite the conservative complaint that they were so worried this was going to be a liberal thing, some of the most Birdwatch tweets are just <laughs> terrible liberal <laughs> tweets that just have. When you see they have a million Birdwatch things on him, you know. <laughs> Which is kind of funny.
1: Okay, I hear that. And I wonder if there's going to be a more robust conversation about some of um, Elon Musk's not-so-great labor takes, now that he is coming close to being officially uh, the CEO of Twitter, Um, or owning Twitter, there is, you know, there has been some resurgence of a discussion about his labor rights around Juneteenth because mm-hmm. there was a tweet that says, "Welcome to Juneteenth. It's a it's a holiday." And then a follow up tweet that let people know that they would have to take unpaid time off if they wanted to observe the holiday. And that's just, you know, that's a drop in the bucket of the broader concerns that people have been having at the at the Tesla factories. But I'm curious if whether this will bring on some scrutiny that perhaps he isn't interested in in this moment.
0: The other, oh, the other, the only other thing, there should be different modes. Look, we don't all have to have the same experience on the platform if people are really sensitive to content they don't want it, it just devolve content moderation to the user hmm. people like you, you use the block and uh, and uh, mute functions pretty regularly yeah. I think
1: mute is gold
0: mute is gold so just <laughs> let people do that or just give them or uh, you curate it based on what they will here here are the people you interact with most and here are what their uh, content policy is. And you can just default to that one if these are the people you like. Maybe that you follow the same thing. Yeah. Maybe if you want an, uh, if you want the chronol. Elon seems to think the chronological is better. I think the chronological thing is unusable. But that's fine. Use the chronological one if really? you want. I think the chronological one is unusable. Mm. Because I don't want to see every tweet from every person I follow... I want to see the highlights. I think the and cons- the algorithm gives you the highlights. Well, and they the con- pr- pr- they say this is manipulative. Yeah. And it certainly can be manipulative, but also it, it is some amount of filtering is actually what I
1: want. Well, that's, that's the concern. People that's are afraid that the algorithm is hiding certain accounts. And I would say the number one thing that I would like to see if Elon Musk is making changes, substantive changes, is to have more transparency about the question of whether accounts are being suppressed or shadow banned or things like that on the, on the app. Because I know a lot of left have been concerned they've been ca- caught up in a kind of a censorship regime right. that's very difficult to prove or substantiate. And about. stop stop punishing off
0: site links unless you just want the site to become totally useless to those of us who are using it in a professional capacity. Yeah. Which maybe you do. Fine. No more Twitter. Like I've been tweeting a lot less because there seems to be, yeah. it seems to be all downside yeah, now. Diminishing it's, just, returns. it's just unpleasant interactions with people. Uh, you, you can't, you're not calling attention as much to good reporting anymore. Sometimes right. you are. But uh, right. it's just not a, it's, it's, Maybe maybe it's peaked. Maybe it's just over. Maybe it's just time to move on <laughs> to something else. That's what happens to social media sites. That's why I kind of push back on the idea of the tech monopolies and no, no. What will we do? Like they can't they can't stay cool and popular forever. Um, well,
1: I'll believe that when there seems to be a replacement emerging.
0: There is. The, the day you, you get
1: on TikTok, I was going to the day you're doing journalism on TikTok, to- Well, probably, by the I time I get on TikTok,
0: it. it will probably be unpopular, it will be uncool by then. But <laughs> no, TikTok ha- is, uh, you know, for better or worse, I, I think there's a lot of bad things about TikTok, uh, given that it's, uh, I think the foreign policy and privacy concerns mm-hmm. are very serious with TikTok, but... It, it seems to be a, uh, or, or as a replacement for Instagram, it seems to be a more positive, some of the harms to children or body image issues mm-hmm. that we see with Instagram seem to me to be less on TikTok, mm-hmm. that it's more like of a, of a, of a affirming, mm-hmm. kind of creative uh, sort Tumblr of. Tumblr vibes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. in, in, it's healthy in that way. Mm-hmm. Unhealthy in the Chinese government spying on you kind sure. of way, it's a suppressing potato. information. But. You win
1: some, you lose some. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and that's something Elon should also make clear that he's not going to, because of his business interests in China, that he's not going to have any temptation. That would be really bad yeah. to do any kind of, uh, it would be really bad on Twitter, given how important right now Twitter is to the political policy and political journalism conversation, to have any kind of moderation that is is done in service of the Chinese right. authoritarian Communist Party.
1: Right. Well, we will continue to follow this story, and we will have more Rising for you after this. California Democrats are launching an investigation into how oil companies are abusing a historic situation to suck profits from Californians wallets with plans to question oil CEOs, regulators and economists to find out why California's gas prices are the highest in the country. Meanwhile, President Biden says he expects to make a final decision about a federal gas tax holiday by the end of this week.
0: Americans are, of course, looking for some relief, as more and more experts predict a recession on the horizon. When pressed about the possibility of a recession, Biden fired back at a reporter for sounding like a Republican politician. Let's watch.
3: I'm not saying I the even more likely than ever. Not the majority of them are saying that. Come on, don't make things up, OK? Now you sound like a Republican politician. I'm joking. <laughs> that was a joke. But all kidding aside, no, I don't think it is. I was... Uh, talking to Larry Summers this morning. And uh, there's nothing inevitable about a recession. I, I think
1: we're going to be able to do a really relaxing backdrop. <laughs> I
3: want to go to the beach.
1: You know, what it's not relaxing is the idea that he's talking to Larry Summers, who many people, you know, blame for the poor handling of the last recession. He is one of those uh, comic figures that just won't go away uh, in terms of Democratic advisors. And the idea that there's nothing inevitable about a recession when... Joe Biden was the vice president through heralding, you know, the country through the last recession is kind of mm. a strange take. Now, Larry Summers did come out recently with a proposal that many on the left were surprised wasn't so bad. It's a it's a departure from the let's just depress wages approach that's been circulating of late. The belief that you just have to um, you're going to address demand by making sure workers don't have enough money, I guess, to, to feed themselves and buy uh, the basic. Basic things that they need to survive, well, but Go ahead. but isn't the
0: you know the, the, with the California prices being so high? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know people are always concerned about price gouging, but isn't this kind of like a simple economic thing whereby look they they if, if people uh, there there would be shortages, so they raise the price, so then some people so instead of the long 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 lines down the block for gas. The price goes up, and then some people say, well, I guess I don't really need to fill up. I'll I'll drive less or I'll get to work some other way. It's inconvenient for them, obviously. But then, so then there's just that many people in line for gas. So if you had the, if you, if the price was lower, then you would just have shorter. There wouldn't be enough gas for everybody.
1: Well, the problem with this. That's the
0: basic economic reason for price gouging during.
1: Well, the problem with that, and I think the problem with a lot of uh, economic models is that it presumes that willingness to pay equals ability to pay. But the reality is that there are some people who can make different decisions and take a train to work, et cetera, and there are people who absolutely cannot. And the people who cannot do anything but drive to work aren't necessarily the people who can afford to pay more for gas. So it's a really imprecise tool that ends up disproportionately hurting people who are already, I would argue, disproportionately poor. Absolutely, vulnerable.
0: but I'm saying that like the reason for the prices going up isn't just like pure unbridled greed it's to induce people some people to stay away from the pumps because there will be there's not enough oil for everyone who is trying to get it at that moment just like this same with any thing during an economic collapse or crisis. I mean
1: right? I I'd argue that's a little bit of an overly optimistic It's like they raise the price they used to
0: with Ubers or ride shares or taxis, right? They raise the price, maybe not taxis cuz they're so aggressively regulated, but there's not enough for everybody, so then the price of it goes up, so then either more more drivers come out because now you can make more money or people say, "Well, I'll walk." So now there's a more like at that price think, that you just cannot meet the demand. I feel like it's you're retorted. just describing
1: price gouging.
0: I am describing, <laughs> but, no, I'm, I'm explaining why but, price gouging is not, is not, is is produced by like just basic economic reality, not like, aha, we can really milk people here.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, I do think the argument about price gouging is that they're always attempting to figure out how they can extract the most from the and, but And also,
0: if you artificially kept the price, if you like force them to have lower prices, then there would be shortages. Then well, there's going to be not. shortages
1: either way. If you're saying there's right. a limited supply of gas or a limited supply of, Uber cars or whatever it is, the issue isn't that there's going to magically become more of the of the limited quality just because you um, right. bring down uh, bring up the price. It's just who gets to access that limited quality and what your quantity. And what you're saying is the richer people should be the ones that have the, the people access. Who can actually pay And what it. other folks are saying is that. There are people who really need to get to work who can't absorb those costs as well. And as our society depends on them being able, whether they're truckers or what have you, to get things across the country, to deliver goods, to get to work, to be part of the service industry, whatever it is, and that we should be attentive to that and not just make sure that some millionaire in their helicopter is the person who gets to fly to Burbank because they're the ones that can afford gas. Uh, But CNN's Dana Bash pressed Biden's energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, on why the administration isn't taking quicker action on providing relief to Americans. Here's what she had to say.
5: Why hasn't that happened yet? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the tools. Uh, You know, first and foremost, we want to increase supply. We also want to take a look at consumer relief directly. Right, and but that this is, is 18 a, cents per 18 gallon. Cents. That's, that's a lot when it, you add it up. It, so it why not do it now? It is, and it's certainly one of the things the president is evaluating. I know this is what's been happening in many states as well. Uh, honestly, the uh, whole array of tools are still being pressed. He's used the biggest tool that he has, but he's obviously very concerned about this continued upward pressure on prices. What's
1: he waiting for? On the gas tax.
5: Well, I mean, part of the challenge with the gas tax, of course, is that it funds the roads and we just did a big infrastructure bill to help fund the roads. So if we do if we remove the gas tax, that takes away the funding that was just passed by Congress to be able to do that. So, you know, th- that's one of the challenges. But I'm not saying that that's off the table. That is, as prices continue to rise, it's certainly something the administration is considering, just like I know governors across the country are considering that. Hmm.
1: The administration is currently releasing a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which could give oil and gas companies a chance to replenish their stock at, at much higher prices.
0: The president remained positive about the situation, however, and declared that this is the time to move toward renewable energy.
3: In time, my dear mother used to have an expression, if anything lousy, something good will happen if you look hard enough for it. Mm-hmm. We have a chance here to make a fundamental no, turn toward renewable energy. Electric vehicles, and, and not just electric vehicles, but across the board. And uh, and that's something we should be, my team is going to be sitting down with the CEOs of the major oil companies this week, and try uh, to get an explanation how they justify making $35 billion in the uh, first quarter. Are you
6: planning to sit down with all and gas CEOs, Mr. No. President? Why, why is that, sir?
3: Because my team's going to do that. <laughs> It is
1: It is very frustrating to hear Joe Biden, who completely threw... Uh, renewables and and, uh, climate change, Green New Deal interests under the bus earlier in his presidency decide to trot this out now at a time when it's not necessarily responsive to this crisis and kind of becomes a piñata for the right to whack at. I I think rightly pointing out that the kind of Green New Deal uh, infrastructure that we do need and which is obviously necessary for climate change reasons and like the survival of the species um, is not going to solve this crisis that he's facing before midterms. And it's, it's, it's it's setting up policies that are much needed for criticism when he completely was Mr. Oil and Gas, mm-hmm. Mr. Fracking, Mr. All of those things, uh, you know, a, a year ago.
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, and there our our foreign policy is contributing to this i Correct. mean i keep hitting this note over and over again but that's the thing we could do differently Correct. you're right getting uh, the renewable stuff that's a long term solution even trying right trying to drill more trying to have more uh, gas per- th- that would be a, a mid term solution it, it, the short term solution is to is to fix this conflict to a much greater degree, yeah. and that would provide some relief, and and would result in people not dying anymore. Yeah. like work on that. That foreign policy is the, is a, a very clear jurisdiction of of our federal government. Yeah. I mean, some of this other stuff is supply chain issues and market problems, the complicated things as a result of the pandemic. The, the 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 area of this that is most directly Responsive to where government policy is the main thing. These are governments fighting with the Ukrainian government, and the Russian government, right. our government imposing sanctions and policy. This is the like the main government thing to do. Right. Is to is to work
1: on this. Right. And I, I also think it's really dishonest. I got to say, for Jennifer Granholm to be pretending. My like governor.
0: There's a governor of Michigan when I lived there.
1: <laughs> well, you know, let her know uh, when I'll you let her like, know when you write your your next letter to to your former governor that you know the pretending like funding the funding of the american government works the same as your checkbook is one of the biggest um, you know misrepresentations that the right ever spun—the idea that they have to collect the gas tax or else they can't play for in- infrastructure—is absolutely absurd. When you pay taxes, when you file in April, those taxes disappear on a computer sheet, and the American Don't government me. Prints, Don't prints, me. prints new money to fund all of its programs. It's not like it goes into some bank earmarked specifically. Oh, this—this this is the percentage of of Robbie's taxes that are go- are going to roads and bridges. That's just not how it works. And so you're seeing now real time how both parties do this they misrepresent the funding streams in order to come up with justifications whether they're not taking certain policy. Um, making certain policy maneuvers. And you saw the kind of sideways look in her eye. It suggests to me that there's some other political considerations that are going on, whether or not it's, the juice is worth the squeeze for him to do a gas tax, what kind of uh, pushback he's going to get from conservatives, that this is maybe fluid as a trial balloon, and they're taking in information about how it's going to go down, but pretending that this is like a tax and spend issue is really dishonest. Well,
0: okay, but I think a, a right-leaning economist would say just, uh, of course you can do that to some degree, but just... Printing more and more money without having any basis in reality for how you're uh, how you're covering these debts does uh, well, devalue the currency, it's, it's debts, leads to inflation, The is et inflation. And inflation.
6: Yeah, we
1: should have some. economists coming on to talk about what actually does cause inflation what we're learning now is there's a lot of uncertainty about what that is but my understanding and what mmt economists say is that it has to do with whether or not it's actually being spent into the economy versus sitting in rich people's bank accounts and that's ultimately what the the issue is in a very simplified way Mm. but florida governor ron DeSantis is ratcheting up his fight with the white house over the with the and the fda rather over child vaccines This, as he weighs in on whether he will participate in 2024, we'll discuss that next with our panel.
0: Former President Donald Trump said he wasn't sure if Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was running for president in 2024. According to an interview with The New Yorker, Trump said, well, I don't ask him. It's his prerogative. I think I would win. However, Trump may be at odds with his donor base. According to Politico, 10 donors who contributed over $20 million to Trump's campaign have recently funneled over $3 million to DeSantis. New polling shows that most Americans don't want Trump or Biden back in the White House.
1: CEO of Status Quo, Jordan Cheriton, and founder of Wrongspeak Publishing, Adam Coleman, are with us to discuss. Thank you both for joining us today.
7: Thank you. Thanks,
1: So Jordan, is this just that thing where Republicans, Democrats, corporatists all across the board often just give to both candidates, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on or what have you, to make sure that, you know, they have a a seat at the table no matter who wins?
4: Uh, I think there's a little bit of hedging their bets, like you're saying, going on. But I do think in terms of uh, the Republican donor base, uh, a lot of them see DeSantis as basically Trump in terms of the return on investment they would get without the headache or uh, mm. you know without the crazy tweeting. Uh, he is definitely uh, a more a much more intellectual version of Trump uh, actually understands policy cares about policy even though I don't agree with his policies. Uh, so I think definitely hedging their bets but also there might be uh, a considerable portion of the donor base that would prefer. Uh, a competent, less uh, headache-inducing version of Trump.
0: Yeah, Adam, it seems very clear to me that so much of the conservative, right, the donor base, the intellectual class, uh, conservative media, uh, which never, you know, they only embraced Trump when they had no other choice, when it was clear that's what their viewers wanted. Those people obviously are going to prefer DeSantis in a head-to-head matchup. So then the question becomes, in my mind, How much of so advantage DeSantis there, but then now it obviously matters hugely what the base wants. But if the base is pretty evenly divided between the two or likes them both, then DeSantis is going to win in a head-to-head matchup.
7: Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, based off of you know, just my personal interpretation, it sounds like to me that the average Republican or right-leaning person or just moderate were far more appreciate DeSantis in office than Trump. Even people who had voted for Trump um, have a little bit of a sourness when it comes to him, even if they agree with some of his policies. Uh, they don't really like the rhetoric. They don't really like how uh, he constantly fell for the media's traps. He, he was his own worst enemy, in my opinion. Um, it doesn't mean that I think he was overall a bad president. I just think that he was extremely complicated and he made his job more complex than it needed to be. I think DeSantis is a far more sensible Republican. He's actually a conservative, which conservatives actually appreciate. Um, And I think he is, like you said, more of the intellectual type, more of the um, say something when he needs to say something, stay quiet when he needs to stay quiet, and not just run off just to run off, uh, as far as his rhetoric. So I think the Typical American would far more appreciate DeSantis in office.
1: Mm. I mean, this is a big gamble given how passionate folks are in Trump's base. You know, if there were an awareness that people were kind of splitting the difference this way, you know, giving giving to a potential you know Ron DeSantis, supporting a potential Ron DeSantis presidency, I do think might trigger some latent Trump enthusiasm um you know that has been depressed now that he's off twitter and less in our public eye i, I want to wonder if the the kind of the, the choice here will become more divisive going forward you know jordan i wonder do you think substantively on the issues this is going to be at all uh what affects people's decision making or is it all going to be about you know their public persona whether or not they seem uh, sufficiently populist who is going to be able to out the other one? DeSantis being a you know Yale graduate and Harvard Law graduate, are these things do you think are going to come up in this?
4: Yeah, uh, respectfully, I completely disagree with my comrades here. Uh, I think Trump would defeat DeSantis, and I don't think it would be particularly close. Mm. Uh, Trump, you got to remember, uh, and I covered both Trump campaigns across the country, uh, there, there's a pro-wrestling aspect to why people mm. like Trump. Uh, there is an entertainment factor. Uh, yes, policy, but there's a large portion of the Republican base that see Trump as still politically incorrect, uh, anti-establishment. Uh, DeSantis has a little bit of like the Hillary Clinton circa 2012, you know, <laughs> high high, high, appro- high approvals uh, as secretary of state. But once she enters the race, everything tanks. Uh, I-, I see that with DeSantis. He has only had to really... Uh, have the pathetic Florida Democratic Party as his competitor. Uh, it, once he once he enters the race, uh, a lot of this culture war stuff, yeah, uh, you know, he'll get points for that. But I mean, Florida's economy is not so great. Uh, between um, uh, property taxes, uh, rent is unaffordable, housing is unaffordable, inflation is higher than the national average. And according to a new a New Yorker profile uh, that kind of went in depth about DeSantis, uh, people say he's aloof. He doesn't have interpersonal skills. He doesn't really uh, make eye contact with his staff. Uh, He's awkward in social conversations. I think that stuff pops out in a national race against Trump, who obviously would have a name for DeSantis and I think make DeSantis look kind of small. So uh, I don't think the, the overall Republican base is looking so much for an intellectual version of Trump. I think that's more donors, maybe the media.
0: Jordan, you're you're definitely not crazy. I thought probably as recently as January, February, I think I actually made a bet then that Trump would be the next Republican nominee again. Uh, and I, at that point, I did not think it, it would be anyone other than Trump. But in the last few months, it seemed to me, I get a sense that the Trump fever is breaking just a little bit, that DeSantis really is benefiting from tons of favorable media coverage, And is also broadly well-liked, in a way, a lot of these other figures. Yeah, maybe when he goes head-to-head with Trump, that will change. I don't think it will be an easy fight for him. I I think if they both run, um, the the 2024 primaries is going to be like a repeat of Hillary versus Obama, where it's like a really drag-out fight to the end. But, uh, but we'll see, and we'll be talking about it until then, because that's what we do. Uh, the Washington Post reports that uh, Floridians, however, are in favor of the governor, Governor DeSantis' response to COVID. Most recently, the governor blasted the FDA for being in bed with Big Pharma, which they are. And some have pointed to the fact that, unlike most politicians, he's still paying off student debt, doesn't trade stocks, clocks in at the lower end of the wealth bracket, compared to most presidential candidates.
1: Yeah, he's got all that law school debt. (laughs) Relatable (laughs) to DeSantis. (laughs) If we look back to why Trump won, it's because he at least postured as a populist, anti-establishment candidate that people wanted over Hillary Clinton. In light of DeSantis' background, do you think he could become that anti-establishment candidate over Donald Trump? Despite this pedigree, we know it's not about pedigree, right? Because, you know, right. Trump has his own, what, Wharton and stuff in his background. It's all vibes. It's not at all about what's on people's transcripts. Who do you think can can, can out-populist the other? I'll go to you, uh, Jordan.
4: Um, I, I think Trump, even though it's complete nonsense and he's not a populist, uh, would still out DeSantis. I mean, th- it doesn't get media attention, but DeSantis... He's your usual Republican. I mean, he's given uh, close to a billion dollars in tax cuts to corporations. Uh, He loved Disney and gave, showered them with uh, breaks before they, you know, the crime of uh, coming out against the don't say gay bill. Uh, He's got kind of that pedigree of uh, Ivy League schooling. uh, That is, I don't know how you spin that as, as populist. And, uh, Contrary to his, you know, I'm fighting big pharma, uh, he rakes in money from big pharma and other big donors. So Trump presumably, uh, you know, would run again in the primary, uh, self funding to a certain degree, and use that over DeSantis.
0: Adam, do you think uh, what DeSantis has done uh, with COVID is an advantage to him? Because I I know actually a lot of uh, Republicans, a lot of conservative media folks, you know, really, really liked the DeSantis approach to the pandemic, defended it, etc. You know, an approach that was. Obviously, wanting to get vaccines attributed, but no mandates of any kind, even going so far as to not allow, uh, yeah, I think, cruise lines to, to even private uh, institutions to require mandates. So, do you, do you see the, the COVID uh, question as a kind of advantage DeSantis scenario?
7: Yes, actually, I do. Um, you know, talking to Trump supporters, actually, one of the things that they really disliked about Trump was Trump was 100% behind the vaccines, while many of his supporters are actually very skeptical. Um, I've even seen where he had rallies and he mentioned the vaccine, and the crowd's voice would kind of shake and and murmur because they're not 100% behind it, but Trump is a, uh, he wants to take credit for everything that he does, and everything that he does is perfect. So he's never gonna back down from his position of furthering uh, the vaccines, and believing that the vaccines are an ultimately good thing because he was involved with it. Uh, if if the tables turned and it was somebody else, if it was Biden who pushed for the vaccines, Trump would likely say the opposite. So I in no way think that Trump believes that the vaccines uh, are an ultimately great thing, that everybody should get it, uh, because he actually thinks it's a great thing and everybody should get it. I, I believe he likes the win. He believes that's a win because anything that was accomplished under his term is considered a win in his eyes. Whereas the Republican voters or just the moderates in between the Trump supporters, very skeptical about the vaccines. Um, I don't believe and I could be wrong, but I don't believe that Trump was in full support of the mandates. I think that down the line, people wanted to make sure that this was a a choice for people. Um, So the mandate part is a little bit different. But as far as the vaccines and thinking that the vaccines are a godsend brought to us. Uh, Trump is all behind it, and I think that really turns off a lot of his voter base.
1: What a fascinating tee-up to have Donald Trump potentially saying, you know, I'm I'm proud. This is my vaccine. I did this. These are I I cured America. And look, look what happened in Florida. Look how many people died in Florida. It's one of the worst states for deaths because of Ron DeSantis and have another Republican arguing, um, you know, the opposite. And then also have Donald Trump potentially attacking DeSantis over, hey, I know real estate. I'm so good at real estate. It's impossible to buy in Florida. It's impossible to do these things in Florida. And having those kinds of issues really vetted and before the public within a party in the way that we so rarely have. It could be, I think, uh, an interesting kind of um, reorientation of what the ideological groundings are within the Republican Party. So I appreciate both of you joining us today.
3: Thanks. Thank you.
1: We'll have more rising for you right after this. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has left people across the region without food and water throughout the months-long conflict. Commentators at the World Resources Institute say that the hostilities will create humanitarian and economic consequences that could potentially put millions of people around the world at risk of hunger. And these might not just be short-term threats. The commentators say that the wrong responses from politicians during this time could threaten a sustainable food future and fuel climate change.
0: Reporter at the American Prospect, Lee Harris, is with us to weigh in. Lee, welcome.
6: Thanks. Glad to be here
0: yeah we're glad to have you uh lay out for us a little bit uh how precisely this conflict is causing uh problems food issues not just in the region affected by the actual war as i understand it but much more broadly for the entire globe
6: absolutely so i think i mean conflict always kind of puts on display existing vulnerabilities in systems and the important thing to know here is the ukraine invasion has severely aggravated the problem but food prices were already at a 10 year high before the invasion and there are a lot more kind of like structural underlying reasons uh, for this global uh, looming food crisis that's already underway um than just the ukraine invasion and i think it's important to get this right right now because biden for instance is calling rising costs across a number of sectors putin's price hike and there's definitely some truth to that That the war increased global inflation and there are these exacerbated uh shipping issues, for instance. But um but yeah, there are a number of other factors. So a couple of them are the high cost of oil and fertilizer and shipping. And again, they're Russia and Ukraine play a big role. Um they supply about 30% of global wheat exports, um 78% of sunflower oil exports, which is really important vegetable oil. And they're also key Russia is a key producer of Fertilizer and gas, um, which uh, which heavily determine food prices or the cost of shipping food. But um, like I said, there are other big factors. Shipping costs have been elevated globally, um, as well as fertilizer and energy prices. And then there's also, interestingly, the high cost of US dollars. So as the Fed has begun to hike interest rates, uh, it's become harder for developing countries for the last several months to pay off their debt and to pay for food imports, which are denominated in US dollars. So
1: some people on the left, including myself, have you know asked, well, is the solution to this to uh, you know try to work toward a quicker end to the conflict in Ukraine? But it seems from what you're saying that this crisis kind of was exacerbated by Ukraine, but preceded the conflict in Ukraine. So what is there to be done now to help you know prevent some of the worst effects of of the crisis ongoing?
6: Um. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that um, accelerating an end to the Ukraine crisis uh, is, is a huge priority. And and also it's worth noting that I think um, I think the Ukraine crisis has helped some people think differently about sanctions as not just being kind of merely an economic tool outside of, you know, violent weapons used in war, um, but actually as a, a tool of war. And so rethinking um, the really aggressive sanctions policy uh, is kind of one tool in the toolbox of addressing this. But I think also in the immediate term, the World Food Program is coordinating really important hunger relief efforts, but in the kind of medium to longer term, it's gonna be really important to um, to, to stabilize uh, food and energy prices and guard against the kind of volatility we've seen over the past two years. So um, short and, and medium term, it's incredibly important to bring down the cost of energy, um, which again drives food prices because uh, it's a major input into fertilizer, food shipping. Um, There's a debate right now in the US around how to do that. I mean, Biden is reportedly considering the gas tax holiday, um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a backdoor subsidy for fossil fuel production. And and the way I think about it is if you're going to be subsidizing fossil fuels, um, I think it makes more sense to directly ramp up oil production or try to um, in the short term. But either way, For for food and energy prices to be more stable um, over the long term, it's going to be necessary and and to be kind of independent of petro states like Russia. uh, We're going to need to build out significant renewable energy capacity, um, setting aside the climate change issue, which is also aggravating food prices. We're going to need that um, simply to have less volatility in our key commodity prices.
1: Well, that's the problem. All of these solutions seem to be obviously right, but the conservative critique of them is also not necessarily wrong when they say, well, this is going to take time. And it's not necessarily, these aren't the kind of interventions that are going to like prevent a famine, for instance, in the next year, or that are going to, say, bring down oil costs before midterms, which is what the Democratic Party's priority are. And it does seem to me like the conversation that's not being had is why do we have the global south so dependent on uh, you know, uh, grain from Ukraine? Why is food being shipped in this global way? What has happened to agricultural productions in all these other parts of the world? What is the role of humanitarian organizations in you know, kind of wrecking the local food markets because of importing all of this grain? You know, is that something that we should be looking at at this time?
6: Yeah, I think more redundancy, more resiliency, not just having a just-in-time uh, food supply chain system is really important. I mean, also that um, that World um, Resources Institute report suggests one kind of short term option that I think is politically really difficult, but that makes a ton of sense, which is the production of biofuels. So that's uh, corn and soy and, and other food crops that are put into fuel, not into, um, uh, not eaten, not consumed either by livestock or humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, most soy and corn in the U.S. Um, isn't eaten. It's made into animal feed, ethanol or biodiesel. Um, and so, uh, and, and that study notes that if we, re- if we halved, if the U.S. and Europe halved grain used for ethanol um, this year, it would fully make up for all the lost exports of Ukrainian wheat, corn, barley, and rye. So that's that's an option that's theoretically on the table, although the kind of constituency for that subsidy um, probably makes it a non-starter.
0: We could also end uh, the sanctions and, and press for Ukraine to come to the table and, and try to work harder or, you know, give them more reason to think you really have to pursue a diplomatic option because there's not going to be an unlimited supply of weapons coming from us that would, uh, I, I think, do some good and also has not shown to do any harm or very much harm to Russia. I mean, that was the goal of the sanctions. And now, you know, even I think many experts are admitting that it did not, it did not deter Putin. It did not uh, compromised the regime enough that it's, like, going to be overthrown. And, in fact, they made, you know, more money in, expert, in exports because the price of it just went up, something we've seen in sanctions, seen from sanctions over and over again, them not having th- this great track record. So, we, you know, we could, right, we do have to consider how our, our foreign policy, which that is under our control, that's policy, uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't involve building new things. It just involves changing, like, what, <laughs> you know, what you're allowed to export, import, etc., Uh, That's a policy choice that the Biden administration made that I don't know if the, you know, American people are on board with or or gave their assent to, but uh, that is a policy.
6: Yep. That seems essential. I mean, the other thing to say, um, like Brianna was pointing at, is um, that this is a a longer-term issue, but climate change is a huge factor uh, driving food shortages, and it'll continue to be. I mean, this year there was a bad drought in the Plains States and the southern U.S., hitting their winter wheat crop really hard. It was the hardest, uh, hottest March on record in India since records began in 1901. Um, and that's right around the time that wheat begins to ripen. So that really hit its wheat production. And then French and Spanish wheat um, is also struggling after they had a big heat wave. So um, uh, so basically ramping up renewable energy capacity um, is going to bring down again over the medium term. Um, uh, is going to bring down food costs, um, but it's also just going to help prevent these weather-induced shortages to begin with. The other thing to say is there's some climate measures um, or, or some like renewables measures that um, that could be implemented on a shorter time horizon. You could do you could bring down domestic gas, gas prices through a fair holiday on public transit, just making uh, public transit free, mm-hmm. allowing more work from home, encouraging carpooling, and instituting restrictions on the speed limit. Now, honestly, I think uh, all of those things are kind of branded in the American imagination as kind of effeminate and weak and lame. But you could totally imagine a campaign branding them as patriotic uh, and and kind of working class and essential to bringing down prices for regular families. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I hadn't heard uh, of people recommending
1: a, a fair holiday, but that seems like an obviously... Um,
0: Everyone should take a scooter to work like I do. <laughs> a it, manly, it masculine, works. non-effeminate... We're, we're, wearing
1: a helmet unlike I'm I'm like Robbie uh,
0: No, now you're making it effeminate. Now you're making it effeminate. Excuse
1: me.
6: My apologies. I've
0: only been hit by a car five times. <laughs> oh, God.
6: Well, thank you so you much. For, check, yeah. Go ahead, Lee. I was just going to say you should check it out in, um, in Salt Lake City. It's been really effective, because to my mind, I was like, uh, would that work, um, given that people take cars to work, they, they have kind of inflexible preferences, they'd rather just keep taking their car, but it actually um, dramatically increased demand for transit um, in Salt Lake City, where they tried it out. And it's just a good policy for the working class. Mm, well, if it plays in Salt Lake.
0: <laughs> our, tra- our transit here in DC is pretty pathetic at the moment though, we have some massive problems with it. But uh, thank you, Lee, so much for joining us.
6: Thanks very much. Bye-bye.
0: And we'll have more Rising right after this. Actor and comedian Ben Stiller visited Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky yesterday on World Refugee Day. Stiller is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Goodwill Ambassador.
1: This comes as the fate of two U.S. military veterans captured in Ukraine remains unclear after Russian President Vladimir Putin's spokesperson said Moscow wouldn't guarantee that they won't face the death penalty. Russia also informed NATO member Lithuania on Monday that unless the transit of goods to Russia's Kaliningrad was swiftly restored, Russia would take retaliatory action. This comes after the country blocked goods to Kaliningrad Russia due to EU sanctions.
0: All this is happening against the backdrop of Ukraine waiting for decision on whether it will be granted the status of a candidate country for the European Union. And this conflict uh, with the Lithuania part of it, I think, shows the danger of kind of empowering just every little state in Europe to start an antagonistic relationship with Russia and think, we've got your back. Do we have, I mean, we don't necessarily want to have your back. This we don't looks, want conflict, period. Mm-hmm. And it's all kind of blowing up in everybody's faces.
1: This was the fundamental question that I've been asking everybody since this conflict started. Since before I had a take, I asked everybody who came on my show, what is the litmus test for U.S. involvement? It cannot be a maximalist litmus test, or we're just fighting every war on the planet right. um, with no uh no interest in what's actually in the best interest of American citizens. So what is the rubric? Why Ukraine and not You know, some country in the global south usually is the question. Um, And no one has really been able to principally answer that because there are some mutterings about, oh, NATO, but it's not a NATO country. And if that's the status, it's everybody who's like NATO adjacent wanting to be a NATO friendly allies. And we get into these kinds of of situations.
0: Right. The honest answer is that, well, Russia is a is a powerful, hostile or semi-hostile nation that we want and we really don't like their government and we would rather their government was I guess, changed, although a a different government, a different regime could be worse, as we've often found in cases where we've experimented with bringing in different regimes. Mm -hmm. So that's the honest answer. It's not humanitarian. It can't be humanitarian. Or you get into a weird, like, why do we care about European lives more than other lives? Right,
1: which we saw a round of that shortly after the conflict started. Oh, my God, they have blonde hair, they have blue eyes, they look just like us. This is devastating. (laughs) Oof, say
6: less.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But the other part of this (laughs) Useless.
1: Go back to where you came from. But the the real, the real thing about this is, I just am struggling to understand uh, why Ben Stiller, why here.
0: Right. I guess the technical answer is he was. What was that? Was uh, what? What what did we read?
3: uh,
0: Surgeon General, commanding general (laughs) of the of the Goodwill (laughs) Ambassador program. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Zelensky. Everybody's kind of got to do their photo op with Zelensky uh, because of his star power which feels kind of weird. Look, in but... fact,
1: I saw, I listened to a clip uh, of their meeting this morning, and Ben Stiller says to him, oh, I, you were an actor. You gave up your whole acting career for this, a successful actor. And Zelensky says something like, not as successful as you. <laughs> there's this like, it's, it's weird, weird uh, rapport uh, uh. that truly begs the question of, you know, even as in his role as a goodwill ambassador, is the idea that there's not enough awareness about what's going on in Ukraine? It, it You know... That the world isn't focused, it's global attention on what's happening in Ukraine? Do we have to? I think issue? the attention
0: has waned a little bit in the last month, or maybe just American media attention has waned. That's
1: well, uh, perhaps because all these other terrible things are happening, in part right. as a consequence of these uh, sanctions uh, yeah, and the war yeah, in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, right, which didn't work. Move on. Like, yeah, oh, the sanctions didn't work. Let's just move on. Talk about something else.
1: It's, it's an incredibly awkward posture. I mean, walking around DC still. I, you know. I was doing a lot of walking this weekend and saw this like battle of flags happening all over the place. There's Ukrainian flags hanging all Mm -hmm. up and down. And obviously there's embassy row and a lot of, um, consulates here in this part of the city. And I saw there was like a, some kind of, it wasn't like the Russian embassy, but it was some other Russian language institute or something. And all the houses right across the street had a ton of Ukrainian flags up. There's this weird, Um, performativity about all of it. And that's that's not to say that individuals aren't sincerely concerned with the humanitarian issues, but the disproportionate focus is so bizarre. There are a lot of people hurting and struggling in the world right now. And your choice to buy a Ukrainian flag off of some who knows who vendor, who's sending the money to who knows where is not, I'm sorry, connected to Your sincere humanitarian Mm -hmm. interests? If so, you would have a whole plethora of flags outside of your house. You know, a Syrian flag, a Palestinian flag. That reminds me
0: of uh, when there are like political events in DC and then all the the merchants appear selling merchants for those candidates. It's clear the merchants have no political Political affiliation whatsoever. Like, can I take some money from some resistance liberals or MAGA loving Trump people? Exactly. But that's capitalism. And to me, that is beautiful. To me, that is truly beautiful. <laughs> right. uh, ben Stiller should have pulled a Derek Zoolander right and, and been like, what, what is this, a country for ants? <laughs> oh, How will we teach them to fight if they can't even get inside <laughs> the building? It's Jesus. great. Jesus great look, look,
1: no, no disrespect to Ben Stiller. I, I love his guy. work and would also enjoy meeting him. Not exactly sure that his capacity uh, as a UN uh, goodwill ambassador is a uh, complete justification for this. Uh, but hey... Yeah. Hey, it's a, it's a cool day for. Zilla. We should
0: wrap this with our best blue steel impressions.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm having fun. It's <laughs> been a long day. <laughs> it's been a long day. We'll have more rising for you after this.
0: Texas Republicans are pushing for a referendum to decide whether the state should secede from the U.S. The demand for Texans to be allowed to vote on the issue in 2023 was a measure adopted in the Texas GOP's party platform following last week's state convention in Houston.
1: Under a section titled State Sovereignty, the platform states, pursuant to Article I, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution, the federal government has impaired our right of local self-government. Therefore, federally mandated legislation that infringes upon the 10th Amendment rights of Texans uh, should be ignored, opposed, refused, and nullified.
0: Secession. Unfortunately, uh, the Constitution of the United States uh, does not allow. I don't believe the states to just no. Secede. States
1: cannot unilaterally right. secede from the union. We're going to have to do right a war. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if, but if uh, and the only way I think that states can be like broken up into smaller states is if they do succeed secede, and then you if there's like a state of war, then they can be just like carved up. Right. That's how we got West Virginia
1: i i look i I the civil very, war I'm pretty I, sure that's I, I'm, how we got I'm West fascinated Virginia. by the politics so california
0: should Democrats should want California to secede, go to war with California, and then they can break it into three states and add up those get more of those uh those uh uh Senate seats
1: look, I think there are people in California who Street would advise stems. that. It's not clear to me that it will remain. A, a blue state. Look, there's so many shenanigans going on in California. Mm. Sometimes, you know, California is blue relative to the rest of the country. Um, but given that they've got this uh, Republican billionaire uh, running for the, you know, mayor of L.A., given that they had a Medicare for All bill uh, that should have passed, a statewide Medicare for All bill that should have passed, given the overwhelming. A Democratic representation in their uh, state Senate, and that still was tanked by the, the Democrats on the, on the, and the most liberal state in the union. It's not it's not clear to me that some of these states really know what their identity Formid is. action
0: lost there and then lost again, bigly, over and over again.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and the posture of this politically is very interesting to me, because you think of some of these states like Texas as places where people really value patriotism. Right. Right. And this idea of like America first and being really bound to the country. But they don't want to be part of America. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how that flies.
0: Yeah. There is an increasingly, maybe not increasingly popular among the right, uh, popular among conservative weirdos I see on Twitter, the national divorce. Do you hear about this idea? You've never heard this terminology? Wow. Okay, (laughs) You are not. uh, This has not penetrated your awareness. Yes. The national divorce is something some people on the right uh, conservative far right talking people on social media are all about a national divorce which is the idea that it should be peaceful it should just be look look we're two different countries we're a, a country of uh, of you know people who who like guns and and low taxes and and uh, and don't want covid mandates and a, a country of people who you know, want drag queens reading to children or something? Again, this is the conservative framing of it, not mine. And we should just be two different countries, and then and and that will be fine. Now, it, practically, it's impossible for many reasons because you have a lot of very deep blue enclaves within of red uh, redder surrounding and countryside, vice versa. and vice versa. So, it, it would there would be no clean way to do it. Obviously, there's no constitutional mechanism to do it. Uh, I look. I do, however want to give more, this is the idea of our country and I think it's a good one, to give a lot of decision-making at the state level. Uh, There's a little too much we all have to live by Washington, D.C.'s rules that increases our mutual enmity and our polarization and it makes all of our presidential uh, uh, contests seem extremely high stakes because Mm -hmm. whoever wins can really force their will on the whole country it in some ways the political climate was healthier 50 or 80 or 100 years ago when who wins the presidency doesn't matter that much because the range of things they have control over when, when FDR that,
1: was bulldozing through federal policy and changing the landscape of uh, the state. Yeah, I don't like all state those policies. And, right, winning, and Growing the administrative state. <laughs> and winning election after election four times, uh, including, I think he won every state except for, what was it, Vermont? Yeah. yeah. That, that's the time period you're talking well, that's, about. Well, no, that,
0: that's the time period where it, switch, it it is under FDR, where we switch from being a very state-based state based uh, process to a to a dramatically more powerful federal government, and I don't. There, uh, you can. Say but it was there were unified and it. popular.
1: Well,
0: I'm saying, okay, but it's we're not unified and popular now, and we're dealing with the system he created that has some downsides. No, because
1: we just need another FDR. We need another. Look, it seems to me that the value of America and some of the beauty of America um, is that there's all this diversity within each state. I think there's something really unpatriotic and gross about saying, I'm going to withhold, you know, I, I I want to, I, maybe Texas and California can do well on their own, but leaving states like West Virginia, uh, in the lurch. And given that so many of the poor states in the union, Mississippi, the whole Southeast are conservative states, it does seem to be, to be a really anti-solidaristic, you know, kind of uh, middle finger to parts of the conservative coalition. I don't think America should be like so many of these Balkan states, like what's going on in Ukraine, where there's this idea that, well, we speak a different language and we have different culture values, so we should split the country in two. I mean, that's fine. Self-determination. People can do what they want to do. But part of what I've always valued about being an American is the idea that we do have the ability to live together in this way and that there are these blue enclaves and not enclaves even just Blue people in red states and red people in blue states, and I don't feel like I never have to go to Staten Island just because I'm from New York.
0: Absolutely, you know? and I like that too about our country. But one way to maintain that for the country, maintain that culture, uh, is to have more of a live and live let uh, live and let live attitude for for people within uh, community who are dissenters within communities or for for different states well, to I say, to you know be- what, maybe we don't all have to have the same exact policy that the tax rates can be different in different states maybe the abortion and they, and they policies are. can be different look, in different states maybe you it's not all government it's not all fiat from whoever happens to yeah, occupy and, the white house in the next and the, the
1: states shouldn't uh, send cps six cps on parents of trans kids yeah no they shouldn't services, do that they shouldn't do that they shouldn't try to d- decide for teachers and communities what books they should read and all of those kinds of things as well i think there is a lack of respect the federal at at the federal level, level. There's a lack of respect to both the federal and the state level for the idea that everyone who lives within your territory um, should live your life exactly as you want to live it. People of other families, other
0: people, other communities are doing things I don't agree with. You know what? Whatever. Do that. That's not what I choose for me or my family or my community. That's not what I would want. There has to be more of a live and let live. I don't know. I I can't even say it. Live and (laughs) let live attitude um uh in this country which is more in line with what uh obviously with what our founding documents intended for us and corresponds to a not a not a period of time that was better in every way but a a healthier political uh period we're just so angry with each other all the time we feel so threatened by each other because there is so much forcing everybody to go one way that is uh, really at actually at odds with the american ethos
1: we would have a little bit of a dispute about that. I yeah. do think that what we have seen over the last few administrations that there's actually some pretty significant limits to federal powers, and the fact that <laughs> the, the, the fact that people are so disenchanted with government right now is because the government isn't doing. Anything, it's people feel like the government isn't responding to these crises that are coming down the pike, crisis after crisis after crisis, and people's disaffection has to do with feeling like the government is useless and neutered. And I think, in large part, it is. We uh, talked—I don't know if I talked with you about it or talked about it on my own show—but there was a study recently about what people, who people across the world, you know, which countries see themselves as more or less democratic, and Chinese people see themselves as being extremely democratic because they measure democracy not so much in electoral uh, electoral lens but by how much the government is able to do for them. And they see the government sending, you know, protective gear for covid and groceries to their and house. Also locking and them
0: in their homes building, building for weeks,
1: building and hospitals overnight and responding to the crisis with alacrity and they say I live in a in a country that is taking care of me. I feel like my country is responding to my needs, while, and that's a democracy. While blaring like
0: drone control the and that's and democracy. And here in
1: America, we scream freedom right. and shoot each other in elementary schools and claim that that's free when people are going hungry, aren't able to afford gas to get to work, and all of these kinds of things. And also feel very very disconnected from the system, from the government, from the state, when to literally secede from the union because they don't see any value in what government is actually doing for them. So. Hmm.
0: Well, tomorrow on Rising, Ghislaine Maxwell reportedly filed over 100 complaints regarding prison conditions during her 22 months in solitary confinement at Brooklyn's Metropolitan Detention Center, and we'll discuss that.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Where's the little picture of our faces? I'm not seeing it. <laughs> no! <laughs> Robert, All right, we'll work on that. Yeah, Robbie the Leo needs to see little pictures of our faces, and mm-hmm. Brianna the Leo agrees. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, goodbye, everybody. See you tomorrow.